in Jesus' most famous sermon, he had a lot of them, but one of his most famous sermon was called the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that he said uh, is very interesting. He says in Matthew 5, verse 9, he has this really interesting line. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Sociologists tell us that America, these United States, are more divided now than at any other time except for the Civil War. A recent survey found that 60% of voters think that members of the other party constitute a threat to America. More than 40% would call them evil, and 20% would call the opposition party animals. They would dehumanize them to the point of calling them animals. One survey found for those that identify as Democrat or Republican, one in three now believe, one in three now believe that violence can be justified to advance their party's political goals. One in three. Another academic study found that hostility to the opposition party and candidates has now reached a level where loathing motivates more than loyalty. The fact that you loathe and despise the other side, that's the thing that motivates you to go out to the polls or to your mail-in ballot or whatever it is you do. Needless to say, we're experiencing all kinds of polarization. <clears throat> Political polarization, racial and ethnic polarization. There's polarization around gender and sexuality issues. This polarization that we're living through is due in part uh, to by what uh, one of my favorite authors, uh, that's, well he's not my favorite author, what am I talking about? But one of the favorite books I've read in the last 10 years is a book called The Big Sort, written by Bill Bishop. And basically the book goes like this. The entire country, the United States, is sorting itself geographically into geographical enclaves. You're, you're sorting yourself based on how you vote and how you think, uh, and more and more Americans are choosing to live geographically near people who are just like them. So what this means in the big sort is that statistically and increasingly, most of us don't live by people who are just like us. Increasingly, Americans live near people who vote like us, who act like us, who think like us, who dress like us, who spend money like us. Um, we are becoming more and more the same. Now, if you go, if you ever visit other parts of the country, it's beginning to look like this more and more. But there's something else that's wrong. You would think that because of all this homogeneity or geographical homogeneity where people are becoming or living near each other more like there'd be more unity there'd be more community taking place but what we're finding is that that is not taking place I don't know if you've ever heard of Robert Putnam he's a sociologist he says that nearly 40 percent of Americans adults have only zero to one confidant zero to one confidant which means you hear what I'm saying Half of our country, almost half of our country, has almost no one to talk to about serious things. So put this together with me. Are you guys with me? Are you guys really in despair? Yet? Yeah, I hope so. 
Because, you know, we're coming through. Okay, so let's put this again. Our country is becoming more homogeneous geographically. We have zero to one confidence. And it's no wonder that, let's pile on, Americans are becoming less happy. Except for you. I can see all your smiles right now because I'm forcing them out of your faces. But you guys are less, you guys are happy. But Americans are getting less happy each year. Now, did you know that antidepressants in the United States... Antidepressants are the second highest volume drug in the country. I'm not saying they're bad, I just think it's an interesting phenomenon. Did you know that Americans consume about 99% of all of the world's hydrocodone and 81% of the world's oxycodone? It seems that drugs are not just given out for physical pain, but they're being given out for existential pain. We are lonely as a nation. Many of us don't live near our own families. We don't know our own neighbors. We, even though we're a lot alike and we live in geographical enclaves, we don't feel like we belong to our communities. We don't know who we are. And many of our identities, especially in West Los Angeles, are fragile. We're easily offended. And into this world of darkness, into the political rage, into the broken homes, and the broken marriages, the confused identities, confusion about what's right and what's wrong, comes Jesus of Nazareth, who literally died. He gave his life up for his enemies to turn enemies into family. While we were still sinners, it says that Christ died for us, but not just to reconcile us to God, but to reconcile us to each other, to create a new multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-class family of God, not based on some temporary ideology, but based on allegiance to Jesus as Lord. And when we come together in this room, in this school, with all these, with these thousands of people here, when we come here and we worship together, we're collectively saying that Christ not only died, but that he rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, we believe that he has all the power in the world to reconcile us to each other. And here's where this gets awesome. When you and I sit down at a table with somebody who does not look like you, who doesn't talk like you, who doesn't act like you, uh, other than the fact that you both follow Jesus together, you are becoming something special there. When you clearly, the only thing that you have in common is the fact that you both follow Jesus, that becomes something called a prophetic witness. And people look at you, and they look at your friends, and they, get, and they say, how can this be? They're so different, yet they love each other. My wife and I play a game. I play it more than she plays it, because I'm better at it. I was, <clears throat> and I'll explain why. I was born deep in the weeds of evangelicalism, and she was born Roman Catholic, so she doesn't have some of the same skills I do. Okay, so, but we play a game, are they Christians? <laughs> Have you ever played this game? Are they Christians? Um, we can, I can spot and smell a Christian with a group of Christians from a mile away. Not only because I have great eyesight, but because I have learned to be able to tell. 
I can tell. I can also tell the difference when a group of people are sitting at a restaurant, whether they're coworkers or Christians. I am probably somewhere around, I was going to say 99%, but it's probably closer to 51% of the time. I'm, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm very accurate and I'm very good at this. And one of the things why I'm so much better at it than my Roman Catholic raised wife is, is that I, there's just something, there's something about paying attention to how different the people are. I remember we were at Disney World, not Disneyland, Disney World. Uh, and we're at Disney World and we're getting on a bus to go from one park to the other because we got the park hopper because they have multiple parks. And, and you see it on the back of the bus, they're all, these group of people hop on and I'm like, mm, the jeans, the people, this person doesn't look like that. I go, check out these Christians. She's like, no, they're not Christian. No, they ain't. For, the, for this particular, she's born in the South. No, they ain't. And I go, let's move one seat closer and listen to their conversation. No sooner that we move two seats over, well, the guy with the, the great hair and the frosted, uh, they're frosted, they're adults. Let me finish the story. The guy with the frosted blonde tips and the great jeans was like, and our pastor said this and this and this. And we were like, yes! Um, the other day, I went to Bagel Nosh. You guys know where that is? It's on Wilshire. If you ever want to go to Bagel Nosh with me, I will take you there. I will buy your meal, and I'll be like, so how's your walk with God? And we'll talk over whatever you want to eat. I would be happy to do that. Hit me up this week, but not the week after. We were sitting there eating, and I'm just with Marin. Nikki wasn't there. And there's this one guy. He looks like old enough to be me, and he's hanging out with like four or five teenagers. I'm like, Christians. And in fact, I even got it right. I was like, that guy's a young life leader. You guys know what young life is? It's a ministry to high school students. I'm like, I bet you that's a young life leader. And I bet you he's doing something called contact work. And I go, Marin, that guy's a young life leader and he's doing contact work. And she's like, what's a young life? And so she had no idea. So I had to kind of make conversation with her. 10-year-old on this. And the way I did, I actually, you know, I didn't go and talk to him and ask him. I did the creepy thing. I looked up if there's any Young Life leaders in Santa Monica, and sure enough, his picture popped up. Yes! Yes! And he was discipling people over bagels at like 7 in the morning. I'm like, I'm so good at this! Recently, my boss's boss's boss took me to a restaurant in Pasadena, but we went to get drinks before and watch the, the NBA finals. This table next to us was so ethnically, racially diverse. I'm like, uh-oh, we got some big C's in here. Christians, that is. And sure enough, at one point, they start turning to us, and I think they were trying to lead me to the Lord. And they were talking about what church they go to and this and that, and I'm like, Yes! Once again, God, listen, there's something about, I tell you three stories right there. There's something, when you see a group of Christians together, there's something unique about them. If you look around this room, don't make a negative face, but many of you should not be friends or be connected to each other based on the rules of society, based on what culture tells you, but because of the power of the resurrected Jesus, you're here. And this goes for many places of worship around our great city right now. Go over to Vintage. You'll see multicultural, multi-ethnic diversity, people of all different socioeconomic statuses. You have all different kinds of different, they have more British people than we do, but they, you know, they have lots going on. It's a beautiful sight. And what we want to do is, is lean into that. Here's the message uh, I want you to hear today. If you are a follower of Jesus, the resurrection demands that you and I pursue peace. We are called 
to be peacemakers. And Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. You see, Jesus was a peacemaker. So we too are called to be peacemakers. Now, I need to say something here. Uh, notice that I did not say peacekeepers. Peacekeepers. What's the difference? A peacekeeper's job is to maintain the status quo, even if that status quo is not good, even when injustice is the norm. A peacekeeper's job is, okay, 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 like Andy Cohen at those reunions. Okay, 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 everyone just settle down. Keep the peace. But a peacemaker is different. A peacemaker's job is to, you guessed it, make peace. And the, because the implication is that there isn't enough peace in the world. Let me give you an example of a peacemaker. I'm going to give you a really good example of a peacemaker here. A peacemaker brings two enemies together to a table to create open space for listening and love and repentance and reconciliation and turns enemies into family. Now, I've talked about this before, but Levi, Levi was one of, the name of, one of the names of Jesus' disciples, one of his 12 disciples, and Levi was a tax collector. Later on, his name would get changed to Matthew, so they would call him Matthew, and sometimes tax collectors were called tax farmers, and I bet you can imagine why they were called tax farmers, because they would farm taxes from the people. And as the story goes, this guy named Matthew, who was a tax farmer, was hated by his own people. His own culture despised him because he was Jewish and he was making a living and likely a very good living, an exorbitant amount of living, by <clears throat> working for the oppressor, who is the Roman government. And he was basically participating in oppressing his own people. And he was making money on it. And so in the life of times of Jesus, we see that Jesus eats with tax farmers and sex workers and in doing so, he raises the horizon of possibility over their lives, <clears throat> inviting them into a new future, a new family, and a new reality. And, you know, when we hear this story, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> when we hear this story, we see, we think it's cool. We're like, oh, it's so cool. Jesus used to eat with tax farmers and people like sex workers and all those things because we live in a free country and a city of, with as high comfort with high taxes and sexual freedom. But imagine, don't think of sexually free people. Don't think of people that are really just excited about giving more money away to the government. I want to do a thought exercise with you. Are you ready to do the thought exercise? I need to know. Are you need you know, verbal confirmation? Yep. It's like if you're sitting in the in the uh, exit row, I need to know. Yes, you need to give me a thing. I need you to stop and imagine whoever the people are in our city or in our nation that you think are just the worst. Look at me when you're ready. Can you think of them? Do you know who the, who's the worst? Don't say it out loud. Do you have them in mind? Think of the people that you would think, you know what, our country would be a much better place if they didn't exist. I'm not going to give you examples. Just use your imagination. If you need help, use your cringe algo. You know what that is? Am I the only one with a cringe algo? On TikTok? Is it TikTok? It's, a, it's an app. 
Okay, okay. Um, so I feel like I'm young and hip. Cringe algo. For some reason, my algo rewards me with things that I want to see. But for some reason, it also rewards me with things that repulse me and offend me. And I'm like, I get to see both. I'm like, I can't believe this person's doing. Each of you, because of your scrolling habits, probably has a little bit of a cringe algo. There's the people you agree with on the things you scroll on. And there might be some things that you disagree with that keep popping up. Why do I keep seeing this? Because you can't look away. Because you can't look at it. Think of the person on your cringe algo or think of the people on your I want you to imagine the deplorables in your life. And when we see Jesus, when we see what he's doing here, we need to imagine that he would eat with people like that. He would eat with the worst, the, the worst person in, that you think is the worst. But whoever those people are, that's the 21st century Los Angeles equivalent of the story I'm telling you right now. When Jesus did stuff like this, they weren't like, oh, that's super cute. It was not cute. It was not sentimental. It was not compelling to people who were outside of the circle. What Jesus was doing was offensive. Stop and think for a minute. Jesus got himself killed because of who he ate dinner with. So that's, that's Matthew's story, right? Now I want to introduce another character. His name is Simon. Simon the Zealot. Now, there's two Simons on Peter's squad, right? There was Simon who later became Peter. He's the guy with all the fish and walked on the water and sank and all the stuff. But there's also another one, Simon the Zealot. And guess what he was? You guessed it, a zealot. And this is wild. I don't know if you know what a zealot is, but these were first century terrorists, domestic terrorists. They're called, often called Sakari men. They would train. They would go into a crowded room, and they would often slit the throat of an enemy, like a Roman, or people that worked with Romans. So like maybe it would have been Simon Zealot's job to go into a crowd and kill someone like Matthew. This is domestic terrorism at its finest. And what do we see? What do we see? You see Jesus, he gets up and he goes, blessed are the peacemakers. And then he turns around, you look at the people on his squad, we see that he brings Jesus, Jesus brings Levi, the tax farmer, and Simon, the zealot, together. He brings them in on the same team. He invites them to break bread with one another. He invites them to do ministry together. He invites them to heal the sick together, to worship together, to put each other's needs above their own. Jesus, at the nightly dinner table with the disciples, you could have probably imagined that these two exchanged words, and they probably weren't, it wasn't some cute Twitter argument. When Jesus brought these two people together, it is the equivalent of the Al-Qaeda sitting down with the Navy SEALs. When Jesus brought them together, there was pain involved. Both these men had lost people. Both had buried loved ones. Violence was assumed among these two people. These two people are sworn enemies. And they are two of the founding apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ. What happened to their politics? We don't know. No one ever wrote it down. We don't even know that Jesus thought much about the Roman Empire. We do know that he thought there was another king and that we belonged to another kingdom. 
He was very clear about the kingdom of God, which is more of a socio-political statement. But most scholars argue that Jesus was deliberately and provocatively, intentionally, however you want to say it, he was silent on the issues of his day. These were raging political issues, yet he was provocatively silent. And that silence ended up being a greater statement than anything that he could have said. We don't know what happened to their politics. We don't know what happened to their political views. All we know is that two former enemies became brothers in the family of God, following the nonviolent, loving, compassionate, suffering way of Jesus. You see, this is what Jesus does. This is the power of the cross. And ultimately, this is the power of the resurrection. Jesus is a peacemaker. He turns enemies into table guests, and he turns guests into family. Pacific City Church, if you want your life with Jesus to make sense to the outside watching world, if you want your friends to encounter the living God, it is necessary for you and I to choose peace, the peace of Jesus in our own lives. This is good news for the people in your life. This will make you look different. This makes you different. I want to apply this a couple ways, uh, and I'm doing it at the end so I can quick end and so you can't get too offended. Um, I'm encouraging you to be a peacemaker at work, at home, in the social situations that you find yourself in. This is the way that we can share our life with Jesus. And it will look so different than everything else we're seeing out in the world today. Look for ways to bring enemies together. Now, I want to cast a vision, but I'm not going to get you all the way down to the ground. Recently, my wife and I we're at brother's, uh, father's office, not brother's office. I don't know what brother's office is. Father's office. You guys know what father's office? And on the screen, there was like a news report on ABC7. And this was uh, the LAUSD Magnet School just uh, had a protest out front uh, because the teachers, the administration want to do something with LGBTQ+. Uh, they want to do like they want to teach some kids some things. And the parents, who are predominantly Catholic and Armenian, were like, these kids are like nine years old. We don't want you doing that. So they, there was a big protest. And so this was the actual, so that was happening during the week. And then Friday was the actual protest or the actual walkout. And so we watched the aftermath. And at one point um, I, in the video, I literally saw you saw it too. There's one guy with an American flag and he's like sword fighting uh, another person with a rainbow flag. And they're fighting and I'm like, there's gotta be a better way. It looked like a scene from The Princess Bride. They're like, <laughs> you know, the man in black. And they're all like sword fighting with the swords and they're like, no, and I'm against it and I'm for it. And they're like, uh, and they're all fight. Listen, I don't know how to get all the way down to the ground on that, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ tells us that there's power to bring enemies into the same table and to help those enemies not only become friends, but become family. I don't know that I have a way forward there, but I do know that's the vision. 
And that's the standard for which we should set ourselves up for. We should not be participating in the violence and in the protests in such a way that it tears people apart. That we should be finding ways to be peacemakers in this highly flammable and highly contentious subject. Let me give you another example. It is only 2023, and you know what happens after 2023? You got it, girl. 2024 is on its way. What's happening in 2024? Does anyone know? General election. The general election. Let's see. Who do we got? We got Biden versus um, probably DeSantis, maybe Trump, right? Uh, we might have, if, if Biden steps out, they might run Kamala, right? Uh, or uh, they might run Newsom. So, like, can you imagine if they run Newsom against uh, DeSantis? That will be two very wildly different visions of America, right? You're looking into my eyes to see if I'm going to give away the answer. I'm not going to. Here's my point. You don't, like, do you think 2016 was wild? Because we all thought, oh, there's no way. And then, it, and then it happened. We're like, wow, we're all surprised. And we all, I went and read a bunch of books on how it happened. And then 2020 happens. Oh, gosh, it's COVID. It's the worst. Uh, and then, you know, there's a whole thing in January 6th and all the thing. So do you think, like, 2024 is going to ramp down? Or do you think that our media is incentivized to ramp it up for us? Right? So there's incentive. You can sell ads by making it a little bit more contentious. Right? And we already know that I just laid out all the players, unless there's some uh, dark horse candidate that I don't know about. You're going into 2024. How are you going to treat the people that will vote differently than you? Will you view them as enemies? Will you view them as animals? Will you view them as evil? Are you the kind of Christian who would overlook violence against your enemies because of their political point of view? Do you see what I'm getting at here? You must be a peacemaker. That will make you be different because that's what Jesus does. He brings peace into our lives and that has to permeate somehow into the political realm. We have to find a better way of relating. There's going to be a lot of anger and there's got a lot to be if you're not with me, you're against me like emotional blackmail, you're going to have to think through how you're going to be different in this next election if you want to follow the peacemaking way of Jesus. This is hard because if you lean left, your left friends will be like, you're, you're not an ally, you're not with me. If you lean right, they'll be like, you stand for the... It's, if you stand in the middle, you run the risk of taking heat from both sides. And you don't want to take heed as a peacekeeper. You want to take heed as a peacemaker. Look for the opportunities to bring people who are different into relationship to, with one another. And the best way you can do that is through the power and the resurrection of Jesus, empowering you to do that. Lastly, I just want to say this about family. Uh, some of you have families that are not getting along. What's it look like for you to help a difficult family to reconcile? To not be susceptible to the anxiety found in your family system. Do you know what I mean by anxiety found in, you know what a family system is? This person has anxiety and because they have anxiety, the other people around them start to feel the anxiety of that other person and it creates this drama and it creates circles and it creates something called triangles 
where like person A puts anxiety on person B, person B doesn't know what to do with it, so it ends up putting it on person C. Generally, that's the child in the situation or number of children in the situation. How can you differentiate from the anxious system that your family is in? And how can, how can you bring peace to that situation? How can you bring reconciliation? Now, I know family issues are complicated. There are sometimes deep wounds and sometimes forgiveness means you don't even have any contact with them anymore or you have limited contact because of your own safety or because of the history there. So I'm not saying that you just need to overlook all those things, but there is something about stepping in as a non-anxious presence peacemaker in your family system. Or you can just contribute to it. You can buddy up with the sibling that you love the most and you can just talk trash. You can make it worse or you can step in and make it better. Here's what's at stake. If we don't pursue peace, we're just going to look like everybody else. We're not going to look any different than anybody else. The watching world will see no difference in your life compared to everybody else's. But listen, if, the, if Jesus rose from the dead, which is what Christians believe, then he has the power to help you become a peacemaker. My prayer would be that God would empower you to be peacemakers so that the outside watching world would look in and they would see that you, they too can experience life with Jesus. Why don't we all stand? We're going to wrap up our time. We're going to worship one more time together. Um, I want to invite some of you to respond and but before I do why don't we um, why don't we pray I'm gonna I'm gonna pray hold on let's pray together Holy Spirit we invite you to be here we invite you to make us peacemakers